Your spring is about to get a lot more power with the Home Depot. Get gas-like power from mowing, trimming, and blowing with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system starting at just $89. Mowing power that can take on a third of an acre with one charge. Trimming power with up to two hours of runtime. And blowing power with 110 miles per hour of clearing force. All in one interchangeable battery. Get cordless gas-like power for the entire lawn with the Ryobi 18-volt OnePlus system. Only at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, October 28th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Children International is working to end child poverty around the world by giving kids access to a safe place, a team, and a path out of poverty by focusing on health, education, empowerment, and employment. Together, with people like you, we're more than a nonprofit. We're a powerful force for change. Learn more at children.org. And here's a shout out to one of our sponsors, Purple Carrot. Purple Carrot is changing the way we think about dinner with their exclusive plant-based meal kit. Good for your health good for the planet. Discover the power of plants with Purple Carrot. Visit purplecarrot.com and be sure to use code MINDS to get $30 off your first order. Kishore, my co-host, is off this week running the Bay Area Science Festival, so if you're nearby, do check it out at bayareascience.org. Last week, we talked about cats, the lions in our living room, and this week, not just because it rhymes, we're going to be talking about bats. Also, Halloween is just around the corner where bats make a significant presence in our lives. Why is it that we think bats are scary? Well, that's a question that Merlin Tuttle has sought to answer for over 55 years. He's an American ecologist, conservationist, wildlife photographer, and he specializes in bat ecology, behavior, and conservation. He founded the conservation organization Bat Conservation International. And he's essentially very aptly titled Batman. He's just recently released a book called The Secret Lives of Bats, My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Mammals. And he will be our interview for today, just in time for Halloween. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Merlin Tuttle. If you're looking for a dose of good karma, check out Crazy Good Turns. It's a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. Each episode tells a vivid, moving story about someone who stretched the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. In this week's episode, hear how costuming, Hollywood-level artistry, and a little bit of magic inspired Ryan Weimar to transform his son's wheelchair into an inspiration. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. Halloween rolls around, and... uh... He wanted to be a pirate that Halloween, 
so I, I was looking at his wheelchair and thought, man, I bet we could, I bet we could build a pirate ship around this chair. What was cool and, and what really was the inspiration for Magic Wheelchair is that experience that we had on the streets of LeGrand as he sailed his pirate ship down Main Street. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes, Google Play, or your preferred podcast provider. Inquiring Minds is brought to you by Blurb. Blurb is a bookmaking platform that allows you to create, publish, share, and sell your own professional quality books from your computer, tablet, or even your phone. I used Blurb to create my very first coffee table book, which happened to be photos from my wedding album. And I have to say that I saved a ton of money and also it came out really well. And it's extremely sentimental to me now because it includes things like our vows, which if I had hired a professional photographer to create a book like that, I would probably never remember what it is that we said to each other. So you can create family books, travel books, food books, and more. There are experts available to assist you every step of the way. You can sell your books on Amazon and the Apple iBook store, and you can make custom, thoughtful holiday gifts for friends and family. Visit blurb.com minds and enter code minds for 25% off your very own blurb photo book. That's blurb.com minds and code minds at checkout for 25% off blurb. Make a book, leave your mark. So welcome to Inquiring Minds, Merlin Tuttle. I am delighted to be here. So it's Halloween, which seems to be a pretty important time for bats. Um, so let's start there. How did bats become associated with scary things like Halloween and spookiness? We invariably fear most what we understand least, and bats happen to have the misfortune of being active at night, living in places that sometimes we consider spooky, like attics and caves and actually where bats are large have up to four to five even near six foot wingspans and they live out in the open people eulogize them as folk heroes bats are most feared in parts of the world where they are small and active only at night so wait there are bats that have wingspans of four to five feet some with almost six foot wingspans that's amazing where do these bats live uh, throughout much of the old world tropics. And do, I mean, do they, you know, I, I've never seen a, a bat that size. Do they have a very different way of life or do they eat insects just like I assume many of the other species do? These largest bats are predominantly fruit and nectar eaters. Wow. They're the world's best long distance dispersers of seeds and pollinators of flowers. That's amazing. So, I've been really enjoying your book, and uh, in particular, because it's such great storytelling, not only about the bats, but also about the kinds of people that you encountered along uh, your journey to understand the bats. So let's start from when you were a boy and, uh, and your sort of first encounter with bats. Well, my first encounter with bats goes back before the book even starts. <laughs> I first encountered bats when a young lady in about the fourth grade bought a, brought a bat to school that uh, her parents had killed and was showing it off. Later, I found bats in an old miner's cabin in California, but I really got intrigued with bats when I learned that there was a colony living in a cave only a couple of miles from my home in Tennessee. Yeah. And so how did you 
you know, what was that first discovery like? You know, in the book, you describe this wonderful kind of adventure that you and your dad went on. Yeah, I, as a high school student, I heard about bats living in a cave near my home. And so I got my father to take me over there and uh, see if we could find them. We found them and uh, I watched them for close to a year because the books that I read about bats said that these bats lived in one cave year round. And when we took my mother back to show her the bats, they weren't there. And so I set about trying to figure out why they weren't because they were supposed to be there year round. And I took detailed field notes and climbed all kinds of crazy places back in the cave looking for them to see if they just didn't come out every night. And finally, armed with a year of observations, I realized that they were coming only in the spring and in the fall. And that implied to me that they must be migrating, which they weren't supposed to do. So I convinced my mother to drive me up to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C., where I could meet some of the people who had written the books I was reading. And I politely informed them that the bats weren't doing what they were supposed to do. I, in fact, took a voucher specimen, we call it, so that they would know for sure that I had the kind of bat I said I had. And um, they were so impressed with my observations that they gave me several thousand bands and suggested I go back and ban the bats and see if I could figure out where they went. And you did that. Yes, and I got very lucky because within just a couple of months of the time that I banded my first several hundred bats, I found some of them 100 miles north in another cave. That was an extreme case of luck. The odds of that happening were probably less than finding a needle in a haystack. But uh, I got pretty excited when I found them. I didn't even realize they were mine when I first discovered them. I assumed that somebody else must have banded them and was excited to go home and report to Fish and Wildlife Service and see who had banded these. I got home and I found that I had banded them. And uh, so then I was really excited. I mean, it's not very often that a high school kid on his first try gets to prove that all the books on the subject are wrong, <laughs> that uh, this species does migrate when it's supposed to live in one cave year round. Not only that, but these bats, instead of going south for the winter, had gone north. And that was, of course, another big discovery for me. Finding those led within a few weeks to my discovering in another part of the same cave what at the time was one of America's largest known bat hibernating populations. And that, of course, really got me excited. And from there, I ended up over a period of years with lots of help from others, banding more than 40,000 of these gray myotis, gray bats, and tracing them over thousands and thousands of square miles. I found that the ones I was studying in on the Tennessee-Virginia border uh, 
migrated all the way down to Florida and back, that bats from a single cave in Alabama moved sometimes almost into the state, well, actually as far west as the state of Kansas, almost into Oklahoma, into Kentucky, Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, Alabama, and Georgia. So it turned out that these bats are among America's longest distance migrators, uh, though because someone had studied a single colony that didn't have to migrate, it had gotten into the books that none of them did. I mean, it's, it's really amazing to think that, you know, someone that young could have had the courage and also ultimately the, the knowledge and the ability to, uh, you know, ban these bats and, and track them. But when you came back to the cave, you also encountered uh, a some, somewhat of a dangerous situation. So tell us a little bit about the kind of human culture um, surrounding some of these caves. Are you talking about the moonshiners? I am, yeah. Okay. Um, actually, I had to learn quite young to get along with moonshiners. Um, my first experience was actually pretty frightening. I had gone back to look for bats once again in the cave where I'd first banded bats. And my father brought his, some of his high school students with us. And I jumped down a few feet into the cave. There was a bit of a drop at the entrance. And when I got down, I found myself staring into the barrel of a sawed-off shotgun with a very mean-looking guy named Bad Eye Murphy at the other end. Bad Eye Murphy, according to sheriff reports, had lost one eye due to a shootout with deputy sheriffs and was considered quite dangerous at the time. I didn't know it. I just knew that he had a shotgun aimed at me. And uh, so in the meantime, my father and the students are up above and he's calling down what's going on. And I didn't know what to say other than come see. <laughs> he jumped down and uh, he, he, he was a guy that was pretty hard. It's hard to get him very perturbed. He uh, simply calmly asked the moonshiner if it was okay for us to look for bats in the cave. And uh, the guy rather grumpily said we could look for just a few minutes and then we had to leave. Well, in the meantime, you couldn't help but be overpowered with the smell of a moonshine still. And we had to walk right by the guy's moonshine still to get to where the bats might be. And by this time, we were so nervous about the moonshiners that uh, we weren't really caring much more about looking for bats. We just wanted to get out of there. So we perfunctorily looked for bats for a few minutes and then left. But my father was a rather conservative, traditional guy who uh, knew that moonshine was illegal. And so he called the sheriff to report a still, which was not in the best interest of my further bat research in the area. <laughs> the sheriff wanted to bust the still that very night. We thought just maybe he and a deputy would show up. It turned out that several carloads of sheriffs showed up at our home that evening, and um, they wanted us to lead them to the still. They didn't want to go to the still in the daylight because they're afraid of being shot en route. And um, so on a 
kind of a little bit of a moonlight night, but not a whole lot of light. We kind of almost felt our way through the forest for quite some distance before getting to the cave. And then uh, a part that I think I left out in my book was the fact that I still can't believe they did this, but uh, the the sheriffs all got behind trees and rocks in a semicircle around the entrance to the cave and asked me to take a big light and go up to one side of the cave and reach my hand around from the side and uh, shine the light in the cave while they yelled that they're under arrest and come out. <laughs> Fortunately, nobody was there. And so there wasn't any shootout, but then they went in and busted up the still with the uh, axes and, and then they were not supposed to, they promised not to reveal the identity of who turned the uh, moonshiners in. But the next day we were front page headlines in the Knoxville newspaper and uh, Tuttle and biology class lead shares to biggest uh, moonshine still in, in of the year. <laughs> and uh, we actually ended up with all kinds of trouble from that. My uncle, who was much more familiar with the area and had lived there longer, actually got our family together and went out and found where the where Bed I Murphy lived. And we actually drove up near his home when he got near his home, he actually, I don't know how he could have had any idea we were coming, but we were on a little narrow dirt road and he all of a sudden stepped out from behind a tree with a deer rifle and told us to stop. And my uncle was quite the gift of gab guy. He immediately started explaining that uh, his brother and family just didn't know anything about moonshiners or, or, Tennessee yet there were newcomers and had made this horrible mistake of uh, telling somebody about the still but we were very contrite and we'd brought some gifts to make up for what we'd done and then he had brought all kinds of canned goods and vegetables from the garden and various things and this guy was so totally amazed that anybody would dare come out and meet him with gifts and apologies. <laughs> he didn't know really what to do, I guess. But um, he finally said we were very lucky we'd made things right and allowed us to leave. <laughs> and that wasn't your only encounter, uh, though. In, in some of your future adventures, you describe, you know, having to really become a trusted member uh you know not necessarily of the community of of uh of moonshiners but you know because you're going to be on their territory um and that that they they knew who you were after a while and they they let you um study the bats well when i was in graduate school and i went back routinely to study bats in the first cave where i'd found my banded ones north of my original location i um ended up the very first night I was working there, moonshiners showed up wanting to know what I was up to. And it was pretty obvious that they had a still hidden somewhere in the close vicinity and they were very suspicious of any outsiders. 
But I've usually gotten along with pretty much everybody, and I invite them to come come back a little later and see me catching bats. They were curious I'd set up a trap in front of the cave that catches bats harmlessly. And uh, so they uh, came back that evening to watch me ban bats, and they were really intrigued. They couldn't believe somebody was putting bands on bats' wings and finding them hundreds of miles away. And uh, so when they realized that I was harmless, no threat to them, and actually friendly, they the next time I came up, they actually brought their wives to meet me. And uh, it, we got to be such good. Well, you, you just, you know, not not getting along with the local moonshiners in those days in the Tennessee hillbilly country was like not getting along with the mafia on the wrong side of New York city or the Bronx today. And, uh, so I, uh, eventually got to be such good friends with them that they, one of them in particular named Hugh Kyle Sellers, he was just a young man about my age, but definitely a professional moonshiner. He started inviting me for dinner with his wife and children, and they were uh, extremely concerned that I wouldn't like the food they had. So it was almost an embarrassment how many special things I don't think they'd ever eaten in their lives they had out ready for me. But it all went so well that uh, they even eventually asked me to, They, I was camping out in the snow in the winter and they invited me to stay with them. But that didn't last too long because I found out that he slept with a sawed-off shotgun expecting the revenues to attack at any time, and I wasn't happy about being caught in the crossfire. But we did end up being very good friends for a long time, and even 15, 20 years later, I would come back and, and go out of my way to look up old Hugh Kyle. So, I mean, while a lot of people see bats as kind of the source of something frightening, it sounds like there are many more frightening instances that you encountered that had nothing to do with bats and, you know, themselves and, and including the caves that they live in. Some of the descriptions that you give in your book are, are really remarkable that, you know, you, they're, they're places that are very difficult to get to. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that, These the 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 kinds of uh, habitats that these bats live in. Um, what is sort of an ideal cave from a bat's perspective? Um, and especially maybe describe some of those caves in which there, you know, you found like a million bats. Well, for, from a bat's perspective, they want a big cave with big entrances, multiple entrances that allow airflow that gives a variety of temperatures and high ceilings and places where they can escape predators or human vandals. Um, we tell cavers sometimes that, uh, bats only use a small percentage of caves in the midsection of America. But the truth is they use the same caves that people prefer to use. So there is a lot of competition for who's going to get to use the best caves and the best caves are these big ones with big entrances and the bats especially like caves uh for hibernation where there's a big entrance drop or something that keeps people frightened in or so one of my favorite caves for research was actually one where there was a 105 foot free fall drop into the entrance 
And so not very many people wanted to go in there, and that kept the bats safe. So let's talk a little bit about when the bats, you know, for the most part, live in in these caves, and how long do they spend in hibernation, and what are the adaptations that they've evolved in order to survive uh, for long periods of time without eating and, and so forth? Well, the gray bats that I studied, the longest distance migrators would actually burn more fat during migration than it costs to hibernate all winter. And so a bat that might weigh seven grams in lean body weight might weigh 16.8 grams just prior to migration. That's more than, you know, obviously more than double his body weight. And um, then they have to migrate sometimes long distances to find stably cool caves where they can lower their body temperature sufficiently to survive the entire winter on fat supplies that they stored up in the fall. To do this, they lower their heart rate down to almost nothing. They're sometimes breathing only a couple times in, in half an hour. And uh, so they've got to last on this fat supply all the way till the next spring or starve because there's no food for them to go out and eat in the wintertime. And so when they're in that mode, if someone stumbles onto a cave full of hibernating bats, that could be a disaster if the bats get woken up too early. Is that right? Uh, Certainly, if it happens too frequently, it can be a disaster. Many, many of America's most important bat caves have lost their bats due to human disturbance. It just takes a few times a winter to cause some bats to die. Now, if you're a bat that migrates, let's say, 500 miles to get to a hibernating cave, you're on a very narrow energy budget. It costs you a lot to get there and to return, so you don't have a lot to spend on hibernation. If you're a bat that lives next door in a really ideal location, you might be able to put on enough fat so that you could survive a fair number of disturbances without harm. And that often gives people the impression that bats aren't harmed by disturbance just because a few do survive. But the really large populations, like the one that I had to rope off 100 feet to get into, ones where there's over a million bats hibernating, those are many of them coming from long distances, and if they're disturbed multiple times in a winter, that can mean death for them. So how do they navigate the world? I mean, let's let's talk about, um, we can talk about echolocation, you know, in terms of their immediate hunting behavior, and then, of course, the large migratory paths. Um, how do they do either or both of those things? Well, their migration is still an amazing mystery because, for example, the gray bats I studied probably can't detect objects more than a matter of just a few, oh, maybe 30 feet in front of them using echolocation. And yet they're migrating sometimes hundreds of miles finding a cave that sometimes has such a small inconspicuous entrance that even after years of knowing where the cave was, I would have to do some looking around after I parked nearby. And we, we, you know, we, we're constantly making clearings, building cities, 
putting in roads. How in the world do these bats memorize the route well enough to figure out how to get around all the changes we make? But uh, bats are actually probably among the smartest mammals around. We know very little about their intelligence yet, but we do know that they have social order that is uh, very similar to that of elephants, whales, and higher primates. In fact, in, in studying the migration of bats, I often found groups of, we'll just call them, quotes, friends, bats that weren't necessarily related, but traveled together over long periods of time. And I'd find them at different places still together, hundreds of miles from where I'd last seen them. And did you, is there any evidence that there's a kind of hierarchy? Is there like a dominant bat and a bunch of underlings? Or is it, does it seem to be more, um, you know, e- sort of equal in terms of, uh, you know, what they do? Do you, have, do you have any knowledge of the social structure? It depends on the species and where they're living, uh, exactly what kind of dominance orders there may be. Uh, there's still an awful lot to learn about bats, but I can tell you that uh, from personally having trained them so that I could do research or photography, they are incredibly smart. I have trained frog-eating bats that memorize the calls of edible species of frogs, and they use that knowledge so that they only capture non-poisonous species and avoid the poisonous ones. I have trained those bats to come to my hand on call and release them to the wild. And up to two years later, bats that have been trained to come on call to the hand, when recaptured, still remember to come on call to the hand. And I've released them into the wild. And hours later, after I thought they had long left the area, I would be somewhere else but say within 100 yards of where I released them, and I've had them follow me and come back and try to get me to feed them uh, after I had released them about in the jungle. But but they don't seem to be popular pets, as far as I know. Is, is uh, Are they? I mean, is that a growing uh, uh, industry? I certainly don't encourage people trying to keep bats as pets. First of all, they eat way too much. I mean, one one little... One of our more common insect-eating bats might eat up to a 1,000 mosquitoes or mosquito-sized insects in a single hour. They have all kinds of unique needs that we usually wouldn't know how to meet. Um, fruit bats are really cute, but they eat up to three times their body weight in fruit or nectar in a night, and that can create quite a mess of droppings in a cage. <laughs> That's true. But uh, bats are vastly different from what people perceive them to be. And, you know, I have photographed probably close to 300 species worldwide. I've studied them just about well on every continent where they exist, often surrounded by millions at a time in caves. And never once in my life have I been attacked by a bat. I've never seen an aggressive bat. They're among the most naturally gentle animals on the planet. They only bite in self-defense if somebody grabs them and they think they're about to be eaten by a predator. Uh, they're so different than people's perceptions, and they are incredibly smart. I, on a recent trip to Borneo, 
caught a little bat that only weighed four grams. That's less than a U.S. nickel. And I wanted to photograph it in my photo studio. And so I um, turned one loose in my studio and uh, got it so that it would eat mealworms from my hand. But I had no idea that I could train it or anything like that. I just wanted not to be afraid of me when I was taking pictures. But within a couple of days, this bat learned that when I entered my studio, if it wanted to be fed and I wasn't giving it food when it wanted it, it would fly up and bump me in the nose until I held out my hand with a mealworm. And then it would go take the mealworm from my hand. <laughs> I mean. I was flabbergasted. Here's this little bat that weighs less than a U.S. nickel training me after I was sure it didn't <laughs> have the intelligence to be trained. That is amazing. Um, so there's this, you know, there there, there do seem to be a lot of um, misperceptions about bats. So, so let's talk a little bit about them. One is that bats only come out at night. How, how true is that? And are there species of bats that are, in fact, diurnal? There are diurnal bats, but the only diurnal bats are bats that live on remote islands where there aren't birds of prey. Hawks, particularly falcons, can catch a bat really easily if he's out in the daytime. So generally speaking, we don't have daytime active bats. And is that because they don't fly as well? Or what, what makes them easier prey than, say, you know, small birds? Bats are among our planet's most agile flyers, probably are the most agile flyers. So that's not the problem. The problem is, is they're flying along echolocating what's out in front of them. You can have a, a Pergen falcon or even a little sparrowhawk dive down very, you know, it, hawks can dive at over 100 miles an hour and come in behind the bat from above and the bat doesn't see him coming until it's way too late. So that also brings me to another question um, about echolocation. Is the way in which bats echolocate similar to what happens with marine mammals, or is it different? Bats have an enormous range of approaches to echolocation. They can, some bats are what we call shouters, and all their sounds that they're using to navigate by are coming from their larynx, just like if we were shouting periodically and listening to the echoes coming back to navigate. There are other bats that do the equivalent of sneezing, and the sounds come out of their nostrils, and th those bats usually have a, an echolocation that gives them much more detail at very close range, but they the sneezing doesn't make the sound go as far, so they don't detect things as far away. But um, there, there's no such way, thing as just one way to navigate as a bat. They have, they're in an arms race with insects they prey upon. And so you know, an average American bat probably echolocates at about 40 kilohertz, which is about 20 kilohertz higher than even a child would normally hear. So insects, many, especially moths, listen for these bats and they drop to the ground, dive into bushes, take some kind of evasive action when they hear a bat coming. And they can hear the bat from up to 100 feet away. So 
these listening moths are taking evasive action when they hear an average bat. But then you have specialists among the bats that are like stealth bombers. You have the big bonded bats of the southwestern U.S. that uh, make audible echolocation that we can hear. It's about nine kilohertz or so. But the moths can't hear them because their ears are tuned for high frequency. And then you have horseshoe bats in the old world that have super high frequency sound over 100 kilohertz. And the moths can't hear them either. They can fly right up to a moth that's listening for bats and not be heard. But the bats are using these strategies, having ultra high or very low frequency calls. They can never be really common relative to the other bats. If they were, the moths would adjust their hearing evolutionarily and evade them. I mean, it is kind of striking when you look at pictures, especially the ones that you've taken of all these different bat species, how different their noses are and how, you know, seemingly intricately, you know, they, they, they almost look as if they've been designed. Obviously, they've been shaped by evolution. And so that's sort of a, a striking feature that I notice in, in a lot of your photographs. Oh, some of the more sophisticated bats are stranger than E.T. or any dinosaur. And they're, they're absolutely incredible. In fact, uh, I, I would suggest maybe your listeners might enjoy going to my website at MerlinTuttle.org to see some of those bats. I show close to 2,000 pictures on that site of bats of every kind you can imagine. And this is also a good time to remind our listeners uh, that Merlin's book, The Secret Lives of Bats, My Adventures with the World's Most Misunderstood Mammals, is available at booksellers everywhere. You also have a picture in there of um, a mother bat and a swarm of babies. And when I first looked at it, I thought, oh, you know, bats must have a lot of children. But in fact, you know, it says that they only have one pup per year um, and they can come back and identify the pup. So can you tell us a little bit about that problem and, and why did scientists think at some point that it was impossible to do? The picture you're referring to is taken of Brazilian free-tailed bats living in a cave here in Texas. In that cave, there are literally millions of mamas, each one bearing just one pup. But given the fact that there are 10 to 20 million bats in a single cave, you're talking about between 100 and 200 tons of bats. And you're talking about them covering thousands of square feet of walls at two to 500 bats per square foot. Now try to figure out how a mother remembers where she left her pup and finds it when it's crammed in among so many other pups. And they're all various ones vocalizing, thousands of bats vocalizing at the same time. Imagine you as a mother trying to find your newborn baby in a pitch black room with a thousand babies calling, crying at the same time. And you try to differentiate yours. It's pretty remarkable. And for a long time, biologists didn't believe that these bats could actually recognize their own pups. They, the early books said that bats were unique among mammals and that they had to herd nurse their babies because they couldn't identify their own. But that's not true at all. The pups, actually, I've watched them. When the, you can tell when a mama is approaching because the pup raises up out of the rest of the young bats 
and vocalizes. And then she, each one knows the other one's voice. And then the final recognition is by scent in addition to voice. But you can also just imagine being a pup in a confusion like that and learning to fly the first time. These little guys have long, narrow wings like a jet airplane. They move at about 30 feet per second. Imagine your first flight. You've never flown before. You've never used your echolocation system before. You're in a pitch black cave. And all of a sudden you decide to just drop into air and fly. And unlike humans who practice landing airplanes on a long runway, you're going to have to fly smack straight into a vertical wall of a cave where if you misjudge your landing by even three millimeters, you may kill yourself. You have to fly at 30 feet per second, roughly, do a perfectly timed somersault at the end of your flight to get your feet out in front with millimeter precision to land. And you have to do all that surrounded by thousands of other baby bats learn to fly. That sounds hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think by now we have an appreciation of just how amazing bats are and you know how many of the ways we've perhaps misjudged them. But what do you think is the biggest threat to bats and how should what what should we as humans do to make sure that uh, they continue to thrive in our environment? The biggest threat, in my personal opinion, based on a long lot of experience, is people simply fearing bats needlessly. We we've all heard greatly exaggerated stories about bats having all kinds of diseases in America. We especially hear about rabies. And somebody, you know, it's always those who profit by our fear. They're out there promoting these scary tales about bats. You hear sometimes that nearly all human rabies cases in America come from bats. That's true. You know how many there are each year? No. On average, 1.5 out of 300 million people. <laughs> I mean, you're. Your, your, your odds of death from your neighbor's dog would dwarf the odds of harm by a bat. Right, right. And, and for all the, most of the diseases that we hear might be spread by bats are pure speculation. The truth is that bats have one of the finest safety records of living with people of any animal on our entire planet. Take, for example, here in Austin, Texas, where a million and a half bats have been living in crevices under a midtown bridge for more than 35 years. When they first arrived, health officials said that they were carrying terrible diseases, especially rabies. They were a threat to public health. People panicked. They were signing petitions to have them killed or at least chased out of town. And um, at that time, I decided that any town that had that many bats with that many news media with nothing better to do than talk about them would be a great place to center my conservation efforts. I moved to Austin 
And by simply pointing out that all they need to do is put up some small signs so that visitors knew that they shouldn't try to handle the bats. We haven't had a single problem in more than 35 years. Not one person has been attacked. Not one person has contracted disease from a bat. And millions of people have come to that bridge because it has now become one of the uh, world-famous wildlife viewing sites. The emergences are so spectacular in early August each summer that you can actually see columns of bats for more than a mile coming out of the bridge. They're eating tons of insects, crop and yard pests every night. They're attracting millions of tourist dollars every summer. The people of Austin don't have to worry about speculation that bats might be dangerous. We know from experience that they're among our most safe and valuable allies. Well, on behalf of the bats and of all the people whom you have enlightened, I want to thank you for your work in conservation and ecology and photography. And thank you for being on Inquiring Minds, Merlin Tuttle. Thank you very much for having me. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. Crazy Good Turns is a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good turns for others. This week, hear how costuming, creativity, and a little bit of magic transformed a child's wheelchair into an inspiration. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org slash minds or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes, Google Play, or your preferred podcast provider. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. A note for those of you living in the Bay Area, do check out Kishore's Science Festivals, thebayareascience.org. And also, I'm giving a lecture slash recital on November the 7th at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music at 7.30 p.m. It's totally free. And I'll be talking about how our brain tracks time and how that leads to our appreciation of music in many forms, along with my favorite string quartet, the Telegraph Quartet, who just won a major competition. Keisuke Nakagoshi on piano and Stephanie Payne on double bass. Hope to see you there. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And today, I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. Kishore Hari will be back very soon. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis, and you can find him at Science Quiche. See you next week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.